This episode of Remnant Radio is brought to you in part by our sponsors at Kairos Classrooms. Have you ever thought about learning a biblical language as a supplemental tool in your biblical studies? Well, Kairos Classrooms offers real classroom environments with with classmates and a live instructor who can help teach you biblical languages, both Greek and Hebrew. You need to check out Kairos Classrooms today. Uh, The price for a single semester is crazy affordable for anyone, so check out the links in the description and use promo code REMNANT to get 10% off Kairos Classrooms. Check out Kairos Classrooms today. Discount code R-E-M-N-A-N-T, REMNANT, to get 10% off your semester. Hey, everybody, welcome to the wonderful world of Remnant Radio. In this episode, I've got Dr. Stephen Nichols. We're going to be talking about the life and teaching of John Calvin. It's going to be an exciting program. You guys stay tuned. You are watching the Remnant Radio, a crowd-funded show where we interview pastors, teachers, historians, and theologians from different churches and denominations. My name is Joshua Lewis, and this is my co-host, Michael Roundtree. Together, we want to help you break outside of your theological echo chambers. If you're interested in learning about history, theology, or the gifts of the Spirit, this is the show for you. Hey, everybody. Welcome to this episode of Remnant Radio. We've got a treat for you, uh, a new Reformed friend that I have made across the interwebs, Dr. Stephen Nichols, uh, first time here on the program of Remnant Radio, and we're talking about something that's super exciting. We're talking about John Calvin. Uh, it's something that is uh, highly debated, uh, hotly contested uh, within the body of Christ is the doctrine uh, of soteriology. Uh, and amongst those, one of the most popular positions is that of reformed soteriology that that many attribute to the working of John Calvin falling through uh, the lineage of Augustine. Maybe I should have said that the other way around, but but you you get the 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 debate if you're familiar with it at all. But I want to remind you before we dive into the subject matter today that Remnant Radio is entirely crowdfunded. So if you want to support the ministry because you've been blessed by this episode or other episodes we've done, consider giving in the description of the video. There's a one-time gift there on PayPal, or you can become a reoccurring, reoccurring giver there on Patreon as well as five bucks a month. Get access to extra content on there. Without further ado, I want to introduce you to my guest today, Dr. Stephen Nichols. He is the president of Reformation Bible College. Uh, tell us a little about yourself and your ministry before we dive into our subject matter today. Uh, sure, Joshua. Thanks for having me on. So I'm president down at Reformation Bible College in Orlando, Florida, which is a great place. I tell people, really, just two words. It's all you need to know about us palm trees. Mm-hmm. Uh, but beyond those two words, this was a college founded by R.C. Sproul. R.C. Sproul also founded Ligonier Ministries, founded that back in 1971. This is an international discipleship ministry producing teaching resources for the church. And back in 2011, actually after a visit to Calvin's Geneva, and maybe we'll get into that, Joshua, and Calvin's uh, forming of the academy there, which evolved to be the University of Geneva, it was after a visit there and seeing it in the old city of Geneva that R.C. was inspired to start RBC. So I came here in 2014. Mm -hmm. It's a great spot to be. We love it. Uh, We have a Bachelor of Arts in Theology, and we are producing theologians for the pulpit and for the pew. And we're just grateful for the students we have. It's great to be a part of RBC. And my day job is a church historian, so I love talking about these figures and especially enjoy Calvin. So I'm looking forward to this conversation with you. Praise God. I'm looking forward to it too. Uh, my my probably greatest regret uh, is not starting Remnant Radio uh, two years, three years earlier so I could have snagged an interview with R.C. Sproul uh, that would have uh, completed my life in so many ways. Uh, uh, love the man and you guys should really check out his ministry if you're not familiar with it at all. 
tons of great content coming out of Ligonier, and you should check out the Bible School as well uh, if you're so interested. Let's let's start with John Calvin, uh, a life, childhood. Uh, where 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 does his backstory come from? Where's that origin stories that we're all not very familiar with? Yeah, so he's born 1509. Uh, he's a Frenchman. His his whole he's going to live in Geneva and and be associated with the city of Geneva, which of course is French speaking Switzerland, but. Calvin was born in France and his heart was for France for his entire life. His father had visions of grandeur for his son, as all fathers do for their kids, right? And initially signed up Calvin to be a servant of the church and a priest. And that would set him on a trajectory for a free education. But as Calvin went off to the University of Paris at the ripe age of 12 years old, he began to study law. And at Paris, he throws himself into the study of law and the humanities. Yeah, so was was Calvin, I, I've heard some kind of different stories about Calvin's childhood when his dad, it seemed as if his dad wanted him to go into um, uh, the papacy, into, the, in, into ministry, if you will, but then there was like some kind of quarrel or something that took place that caused him to kind of like, ah, uh, you should do law instead. Well, it, are there conflicting viewpoints on that uh, historical moment? Am I misremembering that story? No, no, it, it's sort of there. And I think it's, again, it's a question of what his father wished for him. And so you could sort of sign him up on the church rolls, so to mm -hmm. speak. And it's almost like, I guess the, the, um, the comparison would almost be like ROTC, right? So, mm. so you, you get this education, but now you have to go into your military service. So you get this education, but now you have to go into the church service. But in between there, there was this shift of his desire for him to be, and not necessarily law, but really a humanity scholar. And so mm. law and study of law was a part of that. And that, that seemed to be Calvin's trajectory. He's at, he's at one of the colleges at the University of Paris, College of Montague, and, and that college was actually tasked to refute Luther. Mm -hmm. So this is in the, you know, Calvin's there as, as the Protestant Reformation is kicking in and as Lutheran's ideas are kicking in and getting traction in the Rhineland here in Paris, totally committed to the Catholic Church. So this is a foredrawn conclusion. The, the college is going to declare Luther to be a heretic. But they're talking about Luther at this college where Calvin attends. But there's there doesn't seem to be any engagement of Calvin with theology or with what's happening in the Reformation. He is focused on being a scholar and study humanities. And he gets his bachelor's, he gets his master's from Paris, goes to the University of Orleans. And there he's going to continue to study and begin his professorial work. I mean, and that's the trajectory Calvin's on. Certainly like the Protestant Reformation, like you said, I mean, it's being talked about in his school. Um, it's, it's kicking right. into full swing. I mean, again, timeline is not crystal clear for me, but 25 years after Luther, right? He's 25 years later after you, Luther. And, and yes. so he's, Luther's been able to kind of get his message into full swing, right? As, as uh, yeah. Calvin's coming up into it. So he certainly had to have opinions about Protestantism and Lutheranism in general, Lutheranism and Protestantism in general. Uh, what were his thoughts towards the Protestants? Did he had, have any writings that we have uh, that would indicate his feelings towards that movement? So up until 1534, 
he doesn't seem to have any interest whatsoever in theology or the Reformation. So in the 1520s, Luther's ideas are bouncing all around Europe. We got the 95 Theses in 1517, but remember, it's really at Worms in 1521 is when mm -hmm. Luther's de declared a heretic. So it's really in the 1520s that these ideas are ricocheting, especially in a place like Paris. But the Reformation, it doesn't get to Paris in the 1520s. It's, mm -hmm. it's totally dominated by Catholicism. But here's Calvin. He's studying. He writes his first book in 1534. It's a commentary on Seneca. And so Seneca is this Roman scholar, especially on jurisprudence and on civil government. And this is the trajectory that Calvin's on. But things change. He bumps into two people, William Cop and William Buddha. And these two Williams become, I believe, converted. They read Luther and they become converted and they become zealous for the Reformation. And I think it's through their influence that Calvin gets first time, real time exposure to the gospel and to the ideas of the Protestant Reformation. And the next thing we know, Calvin's converted. So it happens very quickly uh, in right there in the 1530s with Calvin's conversion, which I think I gave you the wrong date. I'm sorry. The Seneca commentary is 1532. His okay. conversion is 1534. So all this is happening very quickly for Calvin sometime around 1534. Now, one of these Williams is known in church history for preaching one of Calvin's sermons that Calvin had written for him, and then they both get run out of town. Again, is that right? Tell us a little bit of that story. I might be telling it incorrectly. Well, yeah. So this is William Cop, and William okay. Cop is is converted. He is zealous now. He, like Calvin, is this committed scholar, very sharp. Now he's going to turn all that energy, all that zeal to promoting the gospel. Again, through his influence, Calvin comes under the influence of the gospel. Calvin is converted. Cop preaches a sermon that's very Luther-like. And some believe that Calvin actually wrote the sermon that Cop preached. As Cop preached that, he drew attention of the authorities. And they were in their apartment together, and they had pro-Reformation um, pamphlets and, and material in their apartment. So they got word that their apartment was going to be raided, which of course would lead to an arrest, which could very well lead to a pretty extensive jail time, right? Sure. So they flee and Calvin heads for the borders and is going to now escape France. So it's not quite, um, you know, quite crime, as dramatic. Yeah, his buddy, he, but his buddy gets out, movie, but his buddy gets out and he's like there for a year. Right. And then Calvin has to like hide out and then sneaks out of town later. Out. Yeah. He hides out. He's underground. He's a, he's in the hinterlands. Jesus. Um, he does spend some time in Basel. Um, he, he's he's going to publish very quickly, and we can talk about the big book he publishes one year into his new Christian life. Um, but he publishes with a pseudonym, which was a it was a it was a reworking of his last name, and then the first name was Martinus, in honor, of course, of Martin Luther. Um, so there's that. But yeah, he's sort of on the lam uh, for a year, year and a half, as. Uh, things are heating up for him. Does he entirely walk away from law and dedicate everything to Christian writing and theology? Uh, yeah. He walks entirely away from the law? He does. He always okay. have the methodology. And so this is what's fascinating about Calvin's commentaries. They they have a, 
good impact today. They're, they're very valuable to be read today because he's applying that, that there's a scholastic methodology, but it was also what was called the new learning, which was sort of inspired by the scientific method of, you know, applying the principles of hermeneutics to a text, to interpret a text. What we would call in hermeneutics today, the historical grammatical rhetorical method of interpretation that's what calvin was doing and and you can sort of see the skill of a lawyer with the precision of a lawyer methodologically but no calvin calvin's all in uh he he wants to be an academic theologian so we're going to see how he gets turned on to the pastorate and becomes a pastor but as he wanted to be an academic humanist and scholar in paris now he wants to be an academic theologian and he recognizes that the places for him to be are switzerland he needs to be out of france so the the places are are basel and strasbourg that's where he really wants to go to is strasbourg which today is french so this is the confusion strasbourg today is part of france in Calvin's day, it was French-speaking Switzerland. Ah, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's super helpful. Yeah. You mentioned a book that he wrote earlier, some of his early writings, we know is the Institutes. Can you tell us a little bit about that? I mean, was he 27 when he started writing these? Like, I'm 30. Yes. I feel like so unaccomplished. Like <laughs> Joshua, it's worse, Joshua. He's 26 going on 27. Gross. And on top of that, he has been a Christian for one year. Oh. And what does he do? He writes a systematic theology. Of course he does. I mean, like everyone does, right? right? That's totally. I mean, this is like, you always say, what was I doing when I was 26? Um, it's called the Institutes of the Christian Religion. Okay. He wrote it as a, what he called as a primer on the Christian life and on Christian doctrine. He ends up revising it, editing it throughout his entire life. And, and the final edition he publishes in 1558, in, in print today, it's it's... Uh, somewhere around 1,000 pages or 1,200 pages. Um, and and it's the it's Calvin's Institutes, we call it. Uh, basically, mm -hmm. a systematic theology, Institutes of the Christian Religion. And and that wasn't like the final rendition, right? Like the one, like we say, hey, he wrote this, literally the one of the most influential pieces of Christian literature in the Reformation emerged from Calvin. And he's, you know, 26 going on 27. But like that gets evolved like he like any good systematic there's volume one volume two volume three <laughs> like he keeps revising that thing right like he didn't finish it, it, it at totally 26 evolves. did he it totally evolves i've got a treat for you joshua and for okay. your for your um audience so i mentioned 1535 is the first edition 1558 is the last this is one of the middle editions this and you see the binding oh, right it, it at one time had what they call the clasp binding mm -hmm. but the clasp was worn off this is a 1543 edition of the Institutes. Let's see if I can get you the title page here. Um, so there's the there's the 1543 edition. It's in Latin. <laughs> but there's two special things about this. Uh, one is this belonged to R.C. Sproul. Uh, he he purchased this and then he donated it to the college. And I love having it. Right. Oh yeah. But but the other cool thing about it is. In, in the middle here, I don't know if you see that at the bottom of the page, uh -huh. but yeah. that is a mummified spider. So we have a two or 300 year old spider that went along for the ride <laughs> with this book. 
<laughs> the most um, sanctified spider of all the spiders. I mean, it's a very theological spider. That's right. So here's the thing about the Institutes. It basically follows the, the, the structure of the Apostles' Creed. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's about God, it's about Christ, it's about the Holy Spirit, and it's about the church. So four books, first is on God, then on Christ, then on the Holy Spirit, then on the church. And it's just a wonderful walkthrough of systematic theology, but very applicable. Uh, there's times where you almost feel like Calvin is writing a prayer and, and you're listening in on a prayer. Um, so I, I can't recommend the Institutes enough. Uh, if, if you don't want to read the 1543 Latin edition, uh, you can find plenty of English editions in print and online. So, you know, go for it. Well, it it'll be well worth it. Well, yeah, let me ask you, when it comes to that, like, what what was the overall significance of these institutes? Like, or I say institutes, yeah. like it was like these organizations, but you know, <laughs> I mean, like his publications, like what was so significant about those? And was it different than anything else that had come before? You know, um, yeah, yeah, help us frame that. You know, there was, there were attempts at systematics. Like you go back to the medievalists, you go back to Augustine and Augustine writes his own Christian doctrine. That's essentially a systematic theology. Uh, Thomas Aquinas wrote his massive Summa Theologica mm-hmm. that shelf. Um, but this, this is the first uh, reformation slash reformed systematic theology. And I think that gives it a place in church history. Mm-hmm. But I think also just Calvin's structure to bring it around the Apostles' Creed as a nice basic structure to sort of hang all the doctrines on is just very pedagogical, very helpful. And so I think Calvin, as just a consummate teacher-scholar, has a great structure here to teach theology. So I think that's part of its genius. Um, How influential was it, like as far as its writings, how influential? Yeah, absolutely. It was it was the textbook uh, for many, and it was influential beyond Geneva. It was influential significantly in the next century among the Scottish Presbyterians and the Scottish Reformation, and in many ways the writing of the um, Westminster Standards were very much uh, helped by Calvin's Institutes. It 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 finds its shelf place on everybody's shelf uh, who in even into the present day as theologians and church leaders. So it's, it's hard to uh, overestimate the influence of Calvin and his institutes. Now, this guy was, I, th- I think even when we talk about this, like, okay, he was saved for a year, you know, he's yes. 26, 27, writing this stuff. Um, can you just speak to us about like the, the mental aptitude of this individual? Like this is not <laughs> normal, right? Like this is not... <laughs> It's it's almost so, like extra human, like it's just it's really quite supernatural, if you will, uh, the way that he is able to have such a grasp on uh, Christian theology and to articulate it in such a way that is popularized at this level. It doesn't. It's beyond just education. Like there's a supernatural hmm. grace providentially leading this thing. Um, can you explain to us just the uniqueness of this, his aptitude? You know, there's this great there's this great quote Augustine gives us. In, in the confessions, essentially he says, you know, nothing gets wasted. And, and mm. you think that sometimes we live a circuitous life and we don't always know why certain things. And then all of a sudden there's that aha moment where we see how God 
brings all those things together. You know, it's the classic, we see the back of the tapestry with all these confusing thread tie-outs. You flip it around, you see the tapestry. I, I think it's true of Calvin. I mean, you've got his early education, which was very influential on him. You've got his desire of precision, which is, is very important. I mean, we're talking about eternal truths mm-hmm. that are the difference between life and death. Uh, we're talking about doctrines. We're talking about, we're talking about false teachers making their way into churches that the apostles founded. Mm-hmm. We are susceptible to false doctrine. And so we need the Nehemiah on the wall who is precision, right? But then we need not just our minds inspired, we need our hearts lifted and our soul lifted. And so we need that prayerful theological work. And so Calvin's certainly not perfect. And he's his flaws and everybody knows him. We'll probably talk about him here in a little bit. But um, there's a lot to the package that is Calvin. So, so here's an example. You know, he preached through the book of Ephesians and he got so intense uh, that he actually burst a blood vessel uh, while he was in the Whoa. pulpit preaching. And I think there's just an intensity to Calvin backed up with competency and education and just a desire for the the uh, proclamation and promotion of the gospel. Um, and you're not going to find, you know, Calvin says, he writes a text on why the Reformation, and basically it's, you know, why all the fuss? So now we're in the 1540s. We've had decades of, un, of tumult. We've got wars in Europe over this. Um, why all the fuss? And Calvin says, you know, the church from like top to bottom was, was deformed right? From top to bottom, it was corrupt. And we needed to reform the church from top to bottom. And this is why, for the purity of our worship, Amen. so that we worship God in reverence and all. And I, I really think that's what drove Calvin, the, the purity of the church's worship. Um, and so you see it, it, it sort of like comes out in his writings. And, and that's where I th- that's where I find him helpful. Not perfect, and he had his flaws, uh, but God certainly used him. You tell us how, you, in our last uh, narrative piece, we're, we're talking about Calvin probably writing a sermon for his buddy who gets up and preaches, and they both get run out of town, even though Calvin's, like you said, living on the lamb for about a year. Um, you know, he gets to Geneva eventually. How does he get there? What does he encounter when he's there? <laughs> like, tell us a little bit of that story. Oh, this is one of my favorite stories in church history. It's an overnight stay. Calvin wants to get to Basel. Basel has been established now from the early days of the Reformation, right alongside of Luther. It's an established university. It's an established church. It's going to be a great place for Calvin, a great place where he can just flourish. His desire is, I'm sorry, I didn't mean Basel, Strasbourg, Strasbourg. His desire is to get to Strasbourg. To get there, he has to go through Geneva. So he spends the night in Geneva. Guillaume Farrell or William Farrell um, is in Geneva. He, he brought the Reformation to Geneva. He was kicked out of Geneva three times. He, he'd preach in the public, they'd kick him out, came back. Preach in public, they beat him, kick him out, he comes back. On the fourth time, he finally wins them over. Well, the spirit wins them over. And, and Geneva now becomes reformed. Farrell is a fiery guy. He, he's the guy to come in and take the beating and keep on going. 
he recognizes he's not the guy to establish the church. He sees gifts in Calvin and how we don't know. He's, Calvin's published his book, but it's anonymous. Calvin is totally under the radar at this point. But there's something Farrell sees in Calvin, and he he tells Calvin the next morning as Calvin's about to leave Geneva and make his way to Strasbourg. He says, go, but know that if you go, God will curse your leisure time uh, if you don't stay here. And so Calvin stays, and um, he becomes minister of Geneva. It's not all rosy. Uh, he ends up getting kicked out, voted out uh, mm. in the city he didn't want to be in the first place. And he gets his wish to go to Strasbourg, but eventually they beg for him to come back, and Calvin goes back to Geneva, and that really becomes home base for him. Um, establishing the academy, so there's the education of the next generation, and his work at St. Pierre's Cathedral, and then in God's providence, there's Bloody Mary, right, in England in the 1550s, and she kicks out all these theologians and all these church leaders, and many of them make their way to Geneva, get trained by Calvin. When Bloody Mary is is beheaded, um, then they go back and they take that with them back to England, and especially John Knox takes it back to Scotland. I mean, the reach is immense. Um, in the 1550s, Geneva is sending missionaries to Brazil. Mm -hmm. And over the 1550s, they send about a thousand church planters underground into France. So these are oh. French people who come to Geneva, get studied, get actual funding by people of Geneva so they can go back into France and start underground churches. All this was secret records kept. And um, now we know about it. And it established literally a network of hundreds of underground churches in France. So amazing reach. And all that was was through Geneva. That's so cool. Uh, you know, when he gets to Geneva, there are these group of libertines. Who are these guys? Yep. And, uh, <laughs> how, you know, how, uh, what's the quarrel between Calvin and them? You know, you always have enemies without and enemies within. Right. And the enemies without this Roman Catholic Church. So that's a given. And all the reformers contend with this. But the enemies within are multiplex. And and they're 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 the theological heresies that come up. And so you've got the same old ones as the early church dealt with. Christology heresies, Trinitarian heresies, heresies related to the doctrine of scripture. But then you can see this, right? If Roman Catholicism is all about works, 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 and so one way to express it would be keeping the law, mm -hmm. you're gonna have a group of people that are gonna run in the opposite direction of that. And and sometimes we call this anti-nomianism, mm -hmm. which nomianism, of course, is the law. And so these are against the law. So that, that's the anti-nomian. Sometimes we call them libertines or libertarians. And that, that, of course, would be freedom, right? Hey, we're free in Christ. We're totally free. Uh, who doesn't believe that? That's the beauty of the gospel. This is Galatians. But um, they go to the extreme and, and then want to basically do away with sanctification, do away with the Christian's uh, duty of obedience after salvation. And so... And you can see where they're coming from, right? They're the opposite of a works-oriented. So the pendulum has now swung. They're everywhere, too, in the Reformed world um, and, and in the different Reformed pockets. And so Calvin had to contend with them as well. So can you tell us about 
can you tell us about what happened at the Lausanne Disputation? I know this is one of the more important encounters that where John Calvin is publicly debating, speaking, arguing uh, these ideas in Protestant theology, and this was one of the early moments where Calvin began to shine. Yeah, you have these different disputations. This is actually how the Reformation started in Switzerland at Zurich under Zwingli mm -hmm. uh, in, in 1520 with the Zurich Disputation. And this is the, the Lausanne Disputation. This is in the Bern cantons. Switzerland is, is cantons, which are basically city-states. And, you know, they're not all Reformed. There are a few Roman Catholic um, cantons. And then they're reformed, and then they don't always agree with each other, right? Sure. So they're slightly different from Geneva. But this is one of Calvin's uh, long-term friends, Pierre Verret, uh, who is an interesting reformer in his own right, uh, V-I-R-E-T, um, great figure. And there are all, they're all these secondary, secondary uh, sort of cast of, of the Reformation, especially in Switzerland, that are just figures – that if there weren't the big Calvins and Luthers in their shadows uh, it, looming over, we they would be the luminaries. It was a very rich time in church history. But here's Pierre Verret, and in many ways, Lausanne was already reformed. The, the Lausanne disputation was sort of the formal recognition of this. And so, uh, yeah, Calvin, and I think this just shows his mental uh, powers, uh, is is able to debate minutia uh, really off the cuff, and so he presents a devastating case. Again, it was it was already sort of a foredrawn conclusion where the city was, and this both leadership, academic, ecclesial, well, three ways: political, ecclesial, and academic leadership was there. But there were these groups, and that was just a sort of um, final exclamation point to the Bernese Reformation, which was very important uh, to solidify Switzerland. I mean, you gotta, you gotta recognize this too. You know, you got France uh, and you got Italy and then you got the Swiss city-states. It's tenuous. Um, Geneva is actually not secure in its position to after Calvin's death um, mm. as a city. So it's a, it's, a, it's a tenuous time. And these aren't just theological debates. Um, there's political ramifications. And so Lausanne was an interesting moment. Now, the, Calvin there. the reason I, I brought that one up in particular was because, uh, in again, with no notes, gets up, starts quoting church fathers, quoting scripture. You know, he's going, like you said, just cutting through the minutiae with these guys. One of the Rome's delegates that's sent out there goes, man, I repent. I screwed it up. Today I've heard the gospel. Like he just publicly goes, I'm wrong. Calvin's right. Like when your opponent does that, like, man, and you're doing this from memory. Um, that's that's a powerful, powerful uh, ability. Let's talk about Calvin's theology because his, his theology really affected uh, Geneva quite dramatically. Can we talk about his view of the pre presbytery and how uh, that kind of ecclesiological foundation uh, was set in those early days uh, and how that also affected some of the governmental ideologies that came up in Geneva. So, yeah, absolutely. If you put this in a context, I think it's very important. At, at the center of Calvin's doctrine is the doctrine of God. And now we're back to the Institutes. God, Christ, Holy Spirit, Church. At mm -hmm. the center is God, and at the center is the pure worship of God. Well, we're, we're sinful. God is holy. So we got to go right to Christ in this. 
And so when we start with God, we see ourselves as having been made in the image of God. That's dignity. And we'll come back to that because that's crucial. But then we're also fallen. That's depravity. Mm-hmm. And so we need a redeemer. We know God as creator. We need God as redeemer. And so that's Christ. And now we get into the doctrines of grace with Calvin. We get into this beloved doctrine of election and predestination. And then that's the unconditional election. You know, we talk about tulip, the five points of Calvin with that mm-hmm. Dutch flower mm-hmm. from the Synod of Dort. The actual order is ultip. So first is unconditional election. We start with God. Then we go to what Christ did, the atonement. Then we go to who we are, depraved. There's nothing we can do about it. So then it's Christ working on us and the triune God working on us. That's irresistible grace. And then God keeps us. That's perseverance of the saints. But very crucial to Calvin is the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. And sometimes the Holy Spirit is the forgotten member of the Trinity, uh, even sometimes in reform circles. But here's Calvin who's going to emphasize the Holy Spirit in the living of the Christian life. It's the Holy Spirit who regenerates us. It's the Holy Spirit who sanctifies us. But now, very crucial, we are never saved as individuals. We are saved as part of the body of Christ. And so we are saved into the church. Calvin had a very high view of the church. Mm -hmm. This might surprise some people, but Calvin made the statement, whoever must call God his father must have the church as his mother. So mm. Calvin can't conceive of a Christian outside of the church. I think we have to hear that in our moment of individualism no and sometimes the hyper-evangelicalism, where we think we have our movements and our people and our, right, our institutions. Online church, yeah. Exactly. Online church yeah. coming out of COVID. Uh, we need the church. Yeah. So now let's talk about Calvin's doctrine of the church. Same thing. If, the, if, if life is all about the pure worship of God, the church has one mission, the pure worship of God. So as Calvin comes into church, it's very defined for him. It is the means of grace. It is the preaching of the word. It is the Lord's Supper, and it is baptism. That is what the church is, is commissioned to do, and that's what it should do. Now, Calvin's looking at church government, and he's thinking through how he how we do this and how we pull this off and what you basically have in catholicism is the is the hierarchy papacy archbishop bishop priest calvin moves away from that to a presbyterian form of church government with really a group of elders calvin's going to call these a company of pastors that are the teaching elders and then ruling elders and so that's the form of basically what comes to be called Presbyterian church government based on the Greek word presbyter, which means elder. And that's a different structure than the hierarchical structure of Catholicism. In the Dutch reformed world, this is going to lead to synods. And so different groups of churches are going to be ruled by a synod, which is now all of the church leaders together. Is that similar to how the Lutherans have synods? uh, Yes, it is similar. You don't have the bishop role, though you do have Lutheran church. And then it's it's in Presbyterian church government uh, when you have presbyteries and then a general assembly. Um, So so basically you have the structures of elders on a church level, then some sort of local group, and then some sort of overarching uh, group as as a structure. But don't forget, go back to what the purpose of church is for Calvin. And again, it's the pure worship of God. 
and the faithful um, uh, faithful practice of the means of grace. What the, the reformers, all of them dealt with this, was called the uh, true marks of the church. Prior to oh, the yes. Reformation, yeah, yeah, yeah. prior to the Reformation, there was no conversation, right? There's What is the true church? Well, there's only one church. It's the church on the, so you're either, you're either a member of that church or you're a pagan. Like, those are the only options. Now the reformers come along and say, that's the false church. We're the true church. Well, what, what are the marks of a true church? Well, let's see what the Bible says. Right. And the marks of a true church are the preaching of the gospel and the right ordering of the sacraments. And there's only two of them, not seven, as in the Catholic Church. Now, now so wouldn't there, some, some of them like split preaching of the word, don't they, into like church discipline as an additional? But, that, but Luther would, or sorry, Luther Calvin just kind of looped it all into the same. You can't preach the word without administering some kind of discipline, right? Absolutely, Joshua. That's a great point. So some Knox... And Scottish press, the Scottish Church is going to make three explicit marks. Okay. And so it's preaching of the word, it's right ordering of sacraments, and it's church discipline. Calvin sees church discipline as implicit, especially in the Lord's Supper. Mm-hmm. So, so you know, the time for introspection and the time for judgment is before you actually sit there in the pew. So mm-hmm. he he was for what he called a company of pastors. And each one would have 50 church members under them. And their, their job was to visit every family uh, through the course of the month and meet with them and see where they are spiritually and counsel them. And then they would be uh, ready for communion, which Calvin wanted weekly but settled for monthly. Um, and then they would partake of the Lord's Supper. So what, what Knox does is make what Calvin had as implicit, explicit of the marks of a true church. But the, the bottom line here is they're thinking about what the Bible says a church should be, Amen. Uh, not how a church has evolved. And, and I think that's the takeaway from the Reformers. Yeah, and did, did these views of ecclesiology affect the government there in Geneva? And, and was that overly positive or negative? Yeah, I mean, it's uh, this is this is we've got to get ourselves out of our American disestablishmentarian context to understand mm-hmm. this. All of these are state churches. That's right. So Anglicanism is a state church. Scottish Church is a state church. The the Kirka is a state church. Um, Luther and Lutheranism is a state church. And then in Switzerland, in the city states. Again, it varies. There are a few Catholic, but they're the Reformed Churches Church, Reformed Churches Church in Netherlands. So, so there's a context of a church-state relationship. So the church is going to speak into civic life, and civic life is going to be part of the church. Calvin, Geneva is run by the consistory, uh, which is basically like a town council, and they're sort of uh, ripples. So everybody who's a landowner is part of the broad council, and then there's a inner circle of that that's voted on. And then there's an inner circle of that that actually runs things. And mm-hmm. um, that that has a close relationship with what's going on in the church. Calvin speaks into that. So, for instance, if someone is accused of, uh, of wife beating, they'll be brought before the consistory. But Calvin will speak into that. And one of the first things he's going to do is make sure they have a Bible. And he's going to give them a Bible and you know make sure the husband's reading his Bible and all that kind of thing. So... So, so they are intermingling um, church and state, and it's it's difficult for us, you know. And our we've been at a, stab, a disestablished culture for centuries, 
it's a foreign world to us, but that was the world of the reformers. Yeah. So I think that we're going to have time that we're going to be able to kind of talk about those distinctives of his theology, where there comes with like the means of grace from communion, like that real presence view that was, you know, instrumental sure. in, in not being like a Zwinglian view, but not quite being a Lutheran view either. That, that happy middle ground, we'll, we'll probably have times to talk about union with Christ, means of grace, Holy Spirit stuff. Absolutely, Absolutely. think we'll have that time. But when we're talking about this one in particular, uh, there is a, a, a story that comes up all the time about Michael Servetus, right, getting burned at the stake. If the church-state distinction is difficult, how did um, John Calvin view church discipline and how far could church discipline go since the city-state or the church-state relationship was one and the same? How did that distinction get made? So Servetus was, he's not a case of church discipline. He wasn't a member of the church in Geneva. Servetus is an outsider. And Servetus was actually condemned by the Catholics and was being sought by the Roman Catholics. Servetus denied the deity of Christ. And if you go to Roman Catholic law, which, which governed these, um, not just in the church, but had the political ramifications, two things were capital punishment. Uh, one was denial of any Trinitarian heresies. Sure. So denying the doctrine of Trinity or Orthodox Christology was worthy of, could get you killed, right? Sure. The second one was to publish the Bible in the language of the people. This was why Wycliffe, who died of natural causes, was, was dug up and his bones buried because he committed this capital crime. So those are the two capital crimes on the books through the Middle Ages and into the early modern, early Reformation period. So Servetus was already condemned by the Roman Catholics for his Christology. Calvin is pleading with him to change his views. And then Servetus is going to come to Calvin, come to Geneva and show Calvin where he's wrong. Calvin pleads with him to stay away. Servetus comes anyway. And now the city of council is in, is in a bit of a pickle because mm -hmm. if they don't condemn him, they are they're going to be perceived, and Rome's, Rome will use this against them, they will be perceived as, as wimpier on heretics than the Roman Catholic Church, and who's really the good keeper of doctrine here is going uh. to be the argument. And so they kick Servetus out, um, but he comes back. And again, they beg him not to come back, but he comes back. And then it's not Calvin, it's actually the consistory of Geneva that votes to um, kill him and execute him. And so you could make a case that if Calvin wanted to, he might have been able to say, let's kick him out again. Um, but this seems like reality, it's on the on the conscience of Servetus at this point. I mean, the guy was it's told, on the con don't it is, come it's back. On, I agree. It's on the conscience of Servetus. And ultimately, it was not Calvin's decision. It was the it was the consistory of Geneva that um, that made the decision to execute Servetus. And he was, he was executed as a heretic. And of course this was used by Calvin's enemies then. And it remains probably if you Google Calvin, it's going to be one of the first things you see. Right. The guy who, who burned a heretic at the stake. Now isn't, isn't he not entirely like on record though, for saying that church discipline goes for excommunication and no further, like, Yes. So that's the, so that's where this is really not a case of church discipline. This is, this is a case of civil law because these, these laws were on the books for the Swiss city states as they mm -hmm. were for other places. So, so really Servetus is, is not a, 
he's not a case of church discipline. He's not a you, church discipline requires you to be a member of that church to be disciplined. He's not a member. He's he's an interloper, outsider who's coming in to stir up trouble. Which is, I think, confusing for us when we go, okay, there's no different, like, when we look at the state and the church and the state-run church, and, like, it's so hard to not see those two things as the same, which, I mean, makes sense why people are conflating the story as John Calvin kills Michael Servetus. Um, I, I say it makes sense. It's uninformed, but I do think that I can see how someone would misperceive that. Um, let's talk about some of these other doctrines that uh, John Calvin was instrumental in in popularizing like I, I think of things like union with christ means yes. of grace uh, with the with the table that real presence view um um you know even he's called the theologian of the holy spirit where, where would you want to uh, start i mean we've got probably 10 minutes left in this program so uh where would you think would be the most uh, uh advantageous for us to start with uh, on that list oh let's just knock down the pins as you set them up Joshua. okay great so union with christ think about this all all that is Christ's is ours. Yeah. When God sees us, he sees his beloved son. That's mm -hmm. what union with Christ means. The, the, the teaching of the union of, with Christ starts with Paul. And it actually starts on the road to Damascus in his conversion. And Christ says to Paul, why have you persecuted me? And Paul's been persecuting Christians. I mean, what a palpable doctrine. That, oh, yeah. That's where Paul gets this at the beginning of this. And then this really becomes crucial for Paul. All that is Christ's is ours. So all the benefits of Christ are ours being in Christ. So that's what union with Christ means. Fundam ultimately, it means we are loved by the Father as the Son is loved. I mean, it's just not, Man. it blows you away. Right? Unreal. So that's union with Christ. It's a great way to think of the benefits of, of salvation and the doctrines of salvation and what it means to be a Christian. So union with Christ is very crucial to Calvin, and it's a way of just driving home what redemption really means. Then you mention the Lord's Supper. This was a very divisive uh, topic at the time of the Reformation. So it came to a head at the Marburg Colloquy in 1529, with Martin Luther, who represented what he called the real presence view, and Ulrich Zwingli, Zurich reformer, who represented the memorial view. Mm -hmm. And when the text says, this is my body, Luther takes that seriously. And so the bread doesn't become the body. It's not transubstantiation. That's, right. That's the Catholic view. But Christ is above and below and around and with the element. So Luther called, sometimes it's called consubstantiation with substance. Yeah, Luther Lutherans don't like that when you call it that. No, Luther reason. rejected it. Luther did not like it. Yeah. It's the real presence view. Um, Zwingli is the memorial view. This is a memorial of Christ's body. So the bread is a is representation of his body and the cup is representation of the blood. It is in remembrance of me, you do this. And so the elements cause us to remember the sacrifice of his body and the shedding of his precious blood. The equivalent Calvin of like a wedding there. ring, right? Exactly. Yeah, it's a yeah. sign. It's a sign as the sacraments are a sign, as water is a sign. Um, Calvin wasn't there. He's not even a Christian in 1529. That's going to be five years later. Mm -hmm. uh, but, but 
Calvin does correspond with Luther. And Calvin's view is what's called the spiritual presence view. And in, Cal in Luther's view, as we take communion, right, Christ, as it were, comes from heaven and comes down to be present with us, real presence. Calvin flips the script here and says, communion is a foretaste of the marriage supper of the Lamb, as is described in Revelation. It looks back to Christ's sacrifice, but it also looks forward to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And so what happens in communion is we are transported from our earthly context into the presence of Christ in heaven. Mm. And so Calvin calls it the spiritual presence view. And it's a, it's a stronger view than the memorial view, um, but, it's, but it's not the real presence view. And it, it, again, it's Calvin's way of saying that the Lord's Supper is not simply looking back. It is a foretaste of the union the consummation of the union to come. Um, and so we call this view the spiritual presence view. It, it gets uh, codified or um, put into a confession uh, at the Westminster Standards, which were the Westminster Standards and the Heidelberg Catechism, which is part of the Dutch Reformed Church tradition, mm -hmm. um, represent the spiritual presence view. Whereas Luther's Augsburg Confession represents the real presence view. And then I'd say 90% of evangelicalism is probably Zwinglian, Zwinglian with yeah. the memorial view. Yeah, okay, so last one. He's the theologian of the Holy Spirit. Uh, uh, I love it. Did all the other all the other theologians didn't didn't like the third person? <laughs> What's, what, why, why does he get that title? Because of Warfield. So uh, Benjamin Breckenridge Warfield dubbed him the theologian of the Holy Spirit. And, okay. and it has sort of stuff. But I think it fits. You know, this this is so fascinating. We we Calvin is all about the doctrine of God. Calvin is all about the doctrines of Christ and Tulip. But why don't we talk about Calvin and the doctrine of the Holy Spirit? And so what does the Holy Spirit do, right? The Holy Spirit applies the work of Christ to us. Mm -hmm. And that starts at regeneration. This is born of the Spirit born from above. So dead people don't accept Christ. Uh, regenerated people put their faith in Christ. So regeneration as a crucial work of the Holy Spirit. Who This is Ezekiel's valley of the dry bones. Oh, yeah. In the breath of God, the Spirit of God goes over them and the bones join and then come together and take on sinew and become life. Um, this is what happens at regeneration. Dead becomes living. Then we've got the Holy Spirit sealing us until the day of our redemption. We've got the Holy Spirit assuring us of our salvation, even prodding us as we neglect the means of grace, as we neglect fellowship, as we neglect time in God's word. We feel it, don't we? And our, as the Westminster Standards say, our assurance waxes, but it also wanes. Mm -hmm. And so that's the Spirit not nudging us along, prodding us along. This doctrine of inspiration, is the Spirit's role in the giving of Scripture and the doctrine of illumination, the Spirit's role of understanding Scripture. And then ultimately, it's the Spirit that unites us in the body of Christ, one Spirit. So, yeah, let's let's not underemphasize uh, the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, and Calvin doesn't. And so you've got, again, the four books, God, Christ, Holy Spirit, and basically that's living the Christian life, and then doctrine of the church. Which is, I mean, for people who 
are not familiar, you know, like you said, it's Apostles' Creed, Nicene formulation, like right. the way that they're structured. Well, I would say the Nicene Constantinople, you know, you, you Nicene, you got and the Holy Spirit. Good catch, Joshua. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the, the Nicene Constantinople one that, that's got like actual, you know, Holy yes. Spirit, Lord, giver of life. And then we've got the church there a bit at the end, which is helpful as well. So, um, yeah, I think that's a... Calvin's work, whether you are in the Reformed space or not, because we have a lot of viewers who aren't, um, they might be in that more evangelical space. You're doing yourself a massive disservice by not reading more of Calvin, um, because his work was so instrumental in the formulation of Protestantism in general, and his insights are both biblical and helpful as you read along. I remember I I, I read through, listened through uh, Calvin's Institute's Man, I, I think I was 20, and just going all the way through them. I barely understood half of what I read, but what I understood was insightful. So uh, I, I didn't have the, the I guess, the theological um, breadth enough to understand the one year saved John Calvin. Uh, so uh, I would just say, uh, read Calvin. It would it would benefit your life. Even if you don't agree with everything, he's a, he's a great sparring partner mentally to have been reading through these texts um, like much of church history accredits Calvin looks to Calvin uh, as their their ancestor in the faith if you will uh, Dr. Nichols uh, just give us a closing thought as, as, as people are walking away thinking about Calvin where should they start what book should they look to uh, what's like that that golden nugget that you want them walking away thinking about uh, as they're thinking about John Calvin so great I, I love to do this so Calvin was a pastor, and as a pastor and a preacher, he's going to be a preacher of the word. I would say go to his sermons on Ephesians. You can find these online and find them in print, but go to his sermons on Ephesians and just commit to reading his sermons on Ephesians chapter one. Even commit to just reading his sermons on the first four verses of Ephesians, and and that may be enough for you and, and you want to move on. Or you might find, yeah, there's something here. So I, I would challenge you to start there with Calvin and see where the spirit leads uh, from that point. Sorry, my mute button was still on. Uh, <laughs> that sometimes happens. No worries. Uh, oh, no, I lost him at the end. <laughs> no, no, it's perfect. Hey, hey, tell us uh, where people can follow up with you. If I mean, I don't know if you go and speak at people's churches where they can connect with you, schools, books, all that good stuff where people can really connect with you and your ministry. Absolutely. So you can find information about us at reformationbiblecollege.org. And you can find on our YouTube channel all sorts of lectures and things out there uh, on our RBC YouTube channel. You can find out about me at Ligonier.org. And I speak a lot at Ligonier conferences. Would love to see you, meet you in person. And I've got a little podcast called Five Minutes in Church History. It's the number five. So if you want to check that out, uh, feel free. It's all out there for you. Excellent. Hey, thank you so much for coming on. I really enjoyed the program. If you guys enjoyed that, I encourage you to check out the links in the description. I'm going to link up the podcast and his uh, his college, the Bible College uh, uh, links will be there as well if you're interested in connecting with him further. So guys, thank you so much for tuning into this episode of Remnant Radio. If you want to continue to support the channel, there are links in the description for both PayPal, a one-time gift there, or Patreon as low as five bucks a month to get access to some other content. But if you're out there and you're like, hey, you know, I can't afford five bucks a month. Hit me up media at the I'll send it to you for free. Uh, so without further ado, guys, thank you so much. And we will see you next Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday from four to 5 p.m. Central Standard Time. Blessings. Y'all have a good one.
want to thank Kairos Classrooms for sponsoring this episode of Remnant Radio. And if you're out there, you've ever wondered, hey, I wonder if learning a biblical language would be a supplemental tool for me to help me in my biblical studies. Well, you need to check out Kairos Classrooms. They offer Greek and Hebrew classes that can help teach you and train you. It's a live classroom environment with actual students and actual live teachers, and they help teach you the biblical languages of Greek and Hebrew. And you need to check out Kairos Classrooms today. There's a link in the description, and you can use the promo code REMNANT to get 10% off. These classes are already crazy affordable, but with the promo code REMNANT, R-E-M-N-A-N-T, you'll get 10% off of Kairos Classrooms. So check that out today. And thank you so much for Kairos for sponsoring this episode of REMNANT Radio.